Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to the Arkansas AgCast for January 9th. I'm your host, Rob Anderson. This week, we talk to Arkansas Secretary of Agriculture, Wes Ward, as well as the new leader of the State Agriculture Department's Feral Hog Eradication Program. We also talk to a waterfowl expert from the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission about the problems snow geese are causing for some farmers. First, Arkansas Farm Bureau's Ken Moore talks to Wes Ward, Secretary of the Arkansas Department of Agriculture, about the opportunities, priority issues, and challenges for the agriculture industry in 2020. I'm Ken Moore, and I'm visiting with Wes Ward, the Secretary of the Arkansas Agriculture Department. And Wes, it's great to be with you again. I hope you had a great holiday. Yes, sir. Good to see you. And hey, We're kicking off a new year, Wes, and uh, let's look back, though, uh, before we look ahead. 2019, as we all know, was a difficult year for Arkansas agriculture. Uh, kind of reflect back on uh, the previous year. And I would say there's been challenges across the board for all for all of uh, Arkansas agriculture, which which isn't isn't anything new for the industry to have to deal with challenges. We never have a have a perfect year, uh, but uh, those, those challenges range from the weather concerns, which have have uh, seemed to hit us pretty hard the last couple of years, uh, in particular. Uh, the Arkansas River flooding, historic flooding along along the Arkansas River, and, and trying to deal and uh, respond and recover from that and prepare for for future events. Uh, so that's been a big piece. Uh, but weather concerns, uh, price concerns, trade concerns, uh, really you you name it. It's been something that Arkansas agriculture has had to deal with this year, and, and really I think that points towards. The resiliency of the Arkansas farmer, the Arkansas producer, and the, the resiliency of the industry is, uh, is just that they, they know there are going to be challenges. They face those challenges head on. They, they overcome them uh, and continue to get stronger every year. Uh, and, and uh, you know, looking, at, looking forward to 2020, you know, we're, I think we're ready. We're optimistic and uh, ready to get started and hopefully have a good year this year. As Secretary, what are your primary goals or objectives for this year? What are some of the priority issues that the Ag Department will be dealing with? Yeah, so some of that is is reflective of the challenges we faced in 2019. So uh, things that we've spent a lot of time on in 2019 include the the flooding. Uh, So in response to that was, you know, the governor created a levy task force, uh, and they just just finished that uh, levy task force report. So uh, we're we're looking to implement some of those things and and try to do our best to, as a state, prepare for and, and be able to respond to historic uh, catastrophic events like the flooding we experienced this year. Uh, another one is, is dealing with, you know, animal disease. You know, there's always the, the concern there with whether it's foot and mouth, uh, avian influenza, African swine fever, uh, all of those things that we've, we spent a, a good deal of time in 2019 on that we'll continue to, to work on and prepare for in 2020. Uh, there are, there are other challenges and, and, and new developments as well. So you look at, uh, Industrial hemp, 2019 was our first year for for hemp production in Arkansas, and that's been uh, something we spent quite a bit of time on because that's been uh, an area that's been uh, a new uh, type of production in the U.S. and Arkansas our first year, so working through those challenges of making sure the laws and regulations are are where they need to be so that producers can can move forward and be successful uh, with that crop. Still got a lot to do, a lot to do in 2020 and, and preparing for that. 
so those are just a, a few. Trade is, a, is another big one. Uh, you know, we've uh, uh, was able to participate in a trade mission to India last year. Uh, the governor participated uh, in, in his own trip to India and to China and other countries. And so uh, if you look at some of the challenges of 2019, it's a lot of the uncertainty regarding trade. Uh, and so that's, a, I know, a, a very top priority for the governor is to, to really go out uh, throughout the world and to promote Arkansas as a whole. But yeah. uh, included in that is, is agriculture. Every, every trip that he makes, he talks about the agriculture industry and trying to develop those relationships. So that will be a, another focus for 2020 as well. You reference trade and the challenges we dealt with the trade, especially the uh, tariff war with China that uh, – Still kind of lingering, but we're looking forward to maybe signing off on phase one of a new agreement with the Chinese government so that they might uh, resume their import and, and purchase of agricultural products from the U.S. and here in Arkansas. So that's encouraging. We're looking forward to that. But even uh, more timely would be a ratification of the uh, U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement that hopefully will occur within the next week or so. That'll be a very positive thing to do to begin this new year. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, it's been one of those things that's taken longer than what people expected or, or thought that it would to get to finalization, but uh, optimistic that that will happen this week, if if not this week, very soon. Uh, but certainly a significant impact for Arkansas. Uh, I think the, the most recent numbers I saw was about a, a third of our uh, exports from Arkansas are going to either Mexico or Canada, and that's, uh, uh, I think, about over $500 million worth of agricultural exports. And so it's it's important to our state. It's important uh, to our agriculture industry. Uh, it's been something that the governor has been vocal about uh, and, and talking about trade as a whole, but in particular uh, USMCA and, and advocating for that with the president and vice president. And so I know there's been a lot of people that have been working on that to try to get that right. Uh, I do think it's an, an advancement of, of how these trade agreements will be uh, structured in the future. I think it's, you know, allowing for progress instead of uh, using outdated terminology and, uh, and things that aren't relevant anymore. So it, w it was certainly needed. Uh, it's taken a while to get to that final end product, but hopefully that will happen very soon. You referenced the uh, hemp opportunity for some of our crop farmers. Uh, do you believe this will become a crop that uh, many farmers will be able to add to their rotations, and why would that be advantageous? Uh, I think there's still a lot to be seen from that. Uh, so for 2019, uh, first year of production, we had about uh, about 3,600 acres that were approved for hemp production. So that has to go through uh, through a process. It's, it's, it is a regulated commodity, uh, pretty strictly regulated commodity. There's a lot of uh, challenges associated with that on, on complying with the rules. Uh, so 3,600 acres, when you, you take 3,600 acres and compare that to 3 million acres of soybeans, right. uh, it's, it's, it's still very small and, and still a lot to learn and uh, a lot to figure out regarding that crop and how it plays into the overall ag industry. But, but I do think there's, there's a lot of interest, uh, in hemp and, and part of that I think is, uh, related to just trying to diversify their production. Uh, you know, if, if soybeans is, uh, is facing some of the trade challenges we've pay we faced in the past and some of the markets have been closed, uh, then, then some of those producers are looking for other commodities to be able to grow and, uh, and try to earn uh, some good income off of. 
so it, it, it depends on a lot of factors. It depends on the trade environment. It depends on uh, crop rotation aspects. Uh, it depends on the, the regulatory environment and if we can get that situated in a way that's uh, not overly burdensome. Uh, but there's still still a lot to be seen on the on the hemp environment and what that will look like going forward, not just in Arkansas but across the country. I, you know, every every state uh, is is really kind of in the uh, the same or very similar boat of trying to figure out how do we how do we make this work uh, and, and where does this fit and how do we move forward with hemp production. Peanut production dramatically increased as far as acreage last year. We have a new buying point available in Lee County now, right outside of Mariana. Talk about why peanut production can become a big, big thing here in Arkansas. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we're, we're excited about the, the growth in the, the peanut industry in Arkansas, and I think we just about doubled our acreage this year. I think we're, we're, we were at about 50,000 acres in 2019. Uh, so really seeing those opportunities expand, uh, and I, I think very similar to hemp, I think part of that is uh, how do the producers diversify and and uh, do the risk management tools? You know, can can they grow peanuts? Can they can they incorporate a, a crop rotation with peanuts into their production? Uh, same for hemp, uh, and, and we see that across the board too uh, with with uh, poultry as well. And so I, I think it's a it's a mindset of uh, of producers uh, really kind of looking, taking a step back and looking at the industry. Uh, looking at the world as a whole and saying, what what can we do? What can we what can we grow or produce to be successful and increase our revenues and our income? Uh, and sometimes that's uh, looking at some of these newer growing markets. And you know, again, not new. You know, hemp isn't new really either, but it's just been very highly regulated. Uh, uh, you know, going back a long time ago when it was first uh, produced, you know, World War II type time frame. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's looking at the market, it's looking at all the factors, it's looking at the trade environment, uh, which again I think is a is a great testament to the industry and the producers of they have a lot of factors, uh, they have a lot of things they have to figure out on a year to year basis. A lot of those factors are outside of their control, uh, and so they have to look at their production, look at their uh, their farming operation, and say how do we how do we make the most of this situation? You know, do we need to shift from soybeans to another crop? Uh, because of the trade environment or because of the price. And uh, so a lot of factors go into that, uh, but I think really points to uh, Arkansas agriculture as a whole. You know, if there's something uh, that can be grown or produced in Arkan throughout the world, you know, we can probably do it in Arkansas. We have a very, very successful agriculture industry that, and, and very broad and very diverse. And so we can, we can do just about anything here, which is, which is a great, a great asset to our state. Well, Wes, I know you've been overseeing and um, active member, I think, leading the uh, feral hog eradication task force the last couple of years after the governor established that. We know feral hog control has been a major problem for years now. It's getting worse. You've recently hired the state's first feral hog eradication program coordinator, Mr. J.P. Fairhead. Uh, how will this hire help move the eradication effort forward? Yeah, I, I think... Um I think it will move it forward substantially. Uh, and so if, if you look back uh, just just within the Arkansas Department of Agriculture, uh, we've, we've never had anything dedicated to feral hogs, uh, and, uh, which is unfortunate because of the, the devastating impact that feral hogs are having across the state, but in particular on Arkansas agriculture, uh, across a broad range of agriculture production. Uh, so we've, we've participated in the past on 
the Feral Hog Task Force and, you know, and, and try to partner with Game and Fish and others as best as we can, but we didn't have any dedicated personnel, no dedicated funding. Uh, so being able to move forward uh, with the full-time Feral Hog Coordinator, having JP on board is, is really, I think, going to help us move forward substantially uh, on the agriculture side and dealing with the Feral Hog situation. So uh, there's there's a lot of players involved uh, in that, uh, and so part of this is in uh, in coordination with the USDA grant uh, that was approved through the 2018 Farm Bill, the pilot program. Uh, so it's going to be in close coordination uh, with several partners. So it's going to be not just the Arkansas Department of Agriculture, but uh, but USDA, NRCS, uh, USDA APHIS, uh, Wildlife Services, uh, Arkansas Game and Fish, uh, University of Arkansas, uh, Association of Counties, uh, you know, uh, conservation districts. There's a broad range of partners that uh, that we that we've got to rely on to be able to address the the growing feral hog problem and hopefully turn that tide and uh, take take one more problem off the producer's plate. You know, we can't crystal ball, but uh, with that USDA grant, are you optimistic we can make a dent in the feral hog populations and and start to turn the corner on this thing? I'm very optimistic. Uh, I really am. Uh, and I think that over the last couple of years, we've just seen a growing awareness of, of the damage that feral hogs have caused. And so uh, rarely do we go uh, to the Capitol and meet with legislators or others on, on a broad range of topics uh, that are affecting agriculture and not get asked about feral hogs and what's happening and what's going on and what we're doing about it. Uh, so I, I think that there's, there's awareness from from the governor, from legislators, uh, not just state legislators, but congressional delegation, uh, industry across the board, people are, are, are more aware and concerned about the impact that feral hogs is having. So uh, I, I am optimistic that with all of us working together, we're going to be able to make a, a difference and, and, and turn the tide and help reduce the amount of damage that feral hogs are causing throughout the state. Let's move on to something a little more encouraging. I know that's near and dear to your heart, Wes, and that is the uh, uh, Homegrown by Heroes program that you implemented a, a couple of years ago uh, to honor our veteran farmers. And uh, just talk about how uh, that has become very successful. Uh, we have a couple of companion programs now. Arkansas Farm Bureau has its Vets for Ag program. And then there's the Farmer Veteran Coalition, and we're working very closely with the uh, VA, the Veterans Administration, here in the state. So talk about how successful those programs have been in reaching military veterans and uh, helping them transition from active duty into a life in, in production agriculture and, and why that's so uh, – why you believe that that is a good good fit for them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it is something that I'm certainly passionate about. I'm still still serving in the Marine Corps Reserve, so this is something that I, I, I just love to be be a part of. Uh, you, the combination of agriculture and, and the military, military service, and so, uh, like earlier when we were talking about the diversity of of agriculture in Arkansas, there there are so many opportunities in Arkansas for, for military veterans and service members to, to become a part of. And I think sometimes even though we're, we're, we are a rural state and agriculture is our largest industry in the state, uh, sometimes people forget what all the opportunities and career opportunities that exist uh, in that industry. Uh, and so uh, providing those, providing, you know, additional information, uh, 
to to our military service members who a lot of them are coming from rural Arkansas or from other rural parts of the country uh, just letting them know there there's there's a place for them in the agriculture industry uh, and a lot of that uh, you know, really ties together with their military careers you know agriculture is about providing the food fiber and shelter uh, for ourselves and for the world and, and so there's that service mentality and, and the veterans have that same mentality we, we want to serve we want to protect we want to help uh, and so there's so many uh, correlations between agriculture and the military service and so it's a great combination and we're happy to be a part of it we appreciate farm bureau's uh, support and partnership as, as uh, we've we've had several events uh, uh, and those events have been well participated there's been there's been interest there's been uh, even broader interest uh, you know uh, Arkansas being home to to the Air Force Base and you know and, and multiple National Guard uh, locations and units and so uh, growing interest from them as they're trying to help share that information as well. So I know that the 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 word and the information is is getting out there uh, broader uh, and so it's just something uh, that we've got to continue to to work on and strive towards. But I don't have the exact numbers, but I know that it, it is growing and that we're reaching more more and more people. That's phenomenal. That's great. Well, uh, you know, many of our family farms are multi-generational. You know, you guys award the Century Farm, you know. You, you get it. I think you have a phenomenal program there to identify these multi-generational Century Farms. And, and I don't know, you probably have well over one to 200 of those now identified. But who's going to be the next generation? How are we going to get more and more younger farmers to follow in their dad's footsteps, if you will, and continue that legacy. Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, that's a, I, th- I think very similar to what we're trying to do with uh, with the veterans uh, and just exposing them to the, the broader agriculture industry. Uh, I think the same has to be done uh, for those that, that aren't necessarily veterans. And so it's uh, uh, exposing uh, the youth through 4-H and FFA and other programs to, to the industry and getting them interested and involved in that uh, earlier uh, and as soon as possible and to just uh, help grow them into that and so that they they know the opportunities that are there and uh, can step into those. Uh, the actual family farm situation is, is going to be a, a, a challenge, uh, especially in, in rural areas. It's, it's hard to keep people uh, in rural areas sometimes. Uh, I think sometimes people forget uh, the benefits that, that come from a rural, rural lifestyle. And so uh, I think it, it's going to take all of us talking about uh, the impacts of the industry, the impacts of, of, of what that does and what that means to, to not just an individual family farm, uh, out in rural Arkansas, but what it means for the state as a whole and for our country and the world. And uh, so it, it's going to be, it's going to take all of us to help make sure that that is stable and continues into the future, but it, it, it will be a challenge. Well, Wes, thank you for your time. I've been speaking with Wes Ward, Secretary of the Arkansas Department of Agriculture, on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Next, Keith Sutton speaks with Arkansas Game and Fish Commission Waterfowl Program Coordinator Luke Naylor about snow goose problems in the state. Snow goose numbers have fallen over the past decade, but these winter residents continue causing difficulties for farmers. Naylor took some time to outline some of the best ways to control these nuisance birds. Welcome to AgCast. This is Keith Sutton with Arkansas Farm Bureau. Today I'm in Little Rock with Luke Naylor, who is the Waterfowl Program Coordinator for Arkansas Game and Fish. Welcome to AgCast, Luke. Thanks for having me, Keith. Glad to be here. Today uh, we want to talk about snow geese. Uh, 
anybody who's been driving across the Delta in the last month or so knows that we've just got thousands and thousands of snow geese in this state. We've got a lot of other geese too, but snow geese are the most abundant and they're probably the most problematic. What can you tell us to, to start to kind of give us some background as to how snow geese got to be so abundant in Arkansas? Yeah, so a couple things. Mostly, at, uh, all of it really ties back to, to just landscape change and, and what kind of resources are available. So continentally, we think snow geese grew in population size because of something we think of as, an, as kind of an agricultural subsidy on the spring migration, not even down here. But these geese, as they migrated back in the spring, uh, as corn grew in acreage across the middle part of the country, uh, geese really weren't limited in finding resources on spring migration anymore. So then they, they survive at a higher rate, produce better, uh, just, just arrive on the nesting grounds, uh, mostly in the Arctic or subarctic. They arrive in better condition over a long, over many decades, this kind of, this kind of grew, uh, mainly through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, up to kind of a peak through the early 2000s in population size. Uh, similarly here, you know, as that was happening, habitat loss was going on in areas where snow geese traditionally migrated and wintered, which predominantly East Texas and coastal Louisiana, which used to have a lot of coastal prairie wetlands, that then some of that became rice uh, many, many years ago. And as rice agriculture declined in coastal Texas and southwest Louisiana, for example, and as coastal marsh loss has continued to increase and even grow in those areas, the habitat available for snow geese on the wintering grounds and what we would think of really as their traditional wintering grounds, what they are long-term view, what they were adapted to survive in, uh, has kind of gone away. And in the meantime, though, habitat availability stayed at least the same, if not got a little bit better in, in particularly the Delta of Arkansas. And now we see that even growing uh, shifting east a little bit. Uh, Mississippi's picking up more snow geese in the Delta. Uh, Illinois, for example, is picking up more snow geese, it seems. Even parts of uh, Indiana, they're picking up, they're seeing white fronts now that are that similar patterns to snow geese, although can be slightly different. But so kind of all these things happening together that you had an overall mid-continent light goose population increase at the same time as you had habitat changes in the wintering grounds, which really confined most of these remaining snow geese to, to li limited areas, and a lot of them are in the Delta of Arkansas. Do we have any uh, idea number-wise? Are yeah, we talking so, millions? <clears throat> yeah, continentally we're talking, um, we think maybe peaked out around 15 million geese or so. Um, it's actually, it's hard for it's kind of hard to notice, especially when you're in an, in the area now where most of these geese winter, um, that, that both snow goose and white-fronted goose populations are on a multi-year decline, uh, fairly substantial decline, depending on how you look at it. But when you're talking, you know, 12, 13 million birds declining uh, to, you know, below 10 million birds, you know, it's still a lot of geese that you're going to see on the landscape, right? But they are on a long-term decline. Uh, long-term meaning sometime in the, uh, the latter half of this most recent decade. So you might think having lots of geese is a good thing, but they cause problems. What are some of the problems 
our farmers and other people face uh, when they have big numbers of snow geese on their property? Yeah, so there's a few things that, that can happen with snow geese, and not all of them are bad. Um, you know, they they there's a notion we don't fully understand this, uh, but we think that they do to some degree uh, interfere with with duck foraging and per- perhaps take resources away. Those geese that arrive earlier before ducks get here, maybe there's some competition for food resources that the geese would have typically used. Uh, sometimes just the the, the sheer fact that the geese are in an area because uh, they're aggressive feeders if you watch a flock of geese snow geese especially they're very aggressive they're attacking each other they're they're fighting with each other uh, ducks don't like to do that and you, that's why you see you may see a field full of geese and the white fronts are always a few hundred yards away from the snow geese they don't like all that mess either and so there's kind of a competitive exclusion thing going on there they may eat some of the same resources there's a little bit of research um, out of Doug Osborne's lab at University of Arkansas Monticello uh, with diets of snow geese. And generally, though, it looks like by the time they get here, they're actually more focused on green browse, and which ducks are not eating. So they're probably eating more of the green browse, even within a rice field. We know we have those green shoots that come up within rice fields. And, and sure, we all know they're eating rice. They're eating rice grain, but they're but they're not as focused on grains and they don't eat the invertebrates like ducks are in those fields. So yeah, there's some competition with other waterfowl and with ducks and they probably drive some of them out. You know, when it comes to, um, they can actually help. Uh, they do a great job of uh, straw decomposition. I mean, having waterfowl in a flooded field, rice field is a time tested way to take care of rice straw. And having waterfowl is way better than not. And, and snow geese are going to rototill that stuff. They're going to till. They're going to help that straw decompose throughout the winter, uh, much better than a few hundred ducks might do. Uh, but but then when it rolls into spring, most of the concerns that I that, that I've heard well long before coming here and in lots of places with geese is about uh, winter wheat fields and, and geese actually grubbing up winter wheat. And and you know it's interesting to see how that works. I think it varies a lot from field to field and uh, by soil type and moisture content at the time they're feeding because they're they are uh, they are adapted to grub more than like a Canada goose is a grazer that clips off green grass and snow geese were adapted you just look at their bill and they're, they're more adapted to grub around in coastal marsh and get those kind of, that that's what they evolved to do and so now that they do grub more on on winter wheat fields and you definitely have losses um, in some cases. Uh, I've, I've hunted snow geese in winter wheat fields where the field has been nothing but clipped down to ground level though, and then immediately responded at the first time, you know, when, when the growing conditions get right again. So it really varies from site to site, uh, but most of the concerns by, by farmers revolve around losses of, of winter wheat fields. So if a farmer is having problems or they they want to know more, what's the best avenue for them to follow? Yeah, so because of this population increase through the late 1990s primarily, you know, we have what a lot of people are familiar with called the conservation order, which is not a hunting season. It's a separate opportunity to take light geese in the mid-continent of the U.S. and now Canada and now parts of the, on the coast even. Uh, so that opportunity provides it's really you know from oct anytime a snow goose is here let's just put it that way anytime a snow goose is here it's it's legal to hunt them 
And so there's really not a lot of limitations to, to prevent a farmer, a hunter, helping a farmer to go out and move geese off of a field just with a legal hunting license um, and then a, a conservation order permit during those appropriate times. So you can easily check our, our website under waterfowl hunting for those specific dates and regulations. But, you know, get the proper non-toxic shot is about the only restriction. Now, now plugged guns, things like that still uh, still are required in the regular season. During the conservation order, electronic calls, a half hour past sunset shooting, um, and, and unplugged guns are, are options available to, to hunters, too. So, and no bag limit during that time, And no bag limit during right? the conservation order and a bag limit of 20 during the regular season, which, frankly, if... If you get a group of guys and each shoot 20 snow geese in a day, that's that's doing something. So we don't think most snow goose hunters are limited by the daily bag limit during the regular season. Uh, so opportunities are all over the place to go to go deal with the problem, um, and and through just legal legal hunting means really. Um, and so we, we don't have many cases that I hear of that get beyond that where there's actually because the opportunity is so open that there needs to be depredation permits issued for snow geese because uh, you can shoot at them about, <laughs> about legally about any time of the year when they're yeah, here. We should be sure people understand we're only talking about light, light geese. geese. Exactly. Uh, yep. This doesn't apply to Canada geese or to white-fronted geese right. or speckle bellies, as we call them. Uh, right. Only light geese. Yeah, and that's an important consideration, particularly during the regular season that early conservation order season in October and November. And then the first week or two of February, usually the speckabellies are getting out of here by then, but just be careful with folks, especially if people are, you know, just shooting birds out of a field. Um, just just be careful and watch for those speckabellies that are on the edge. They're usually on the fringes. If you hear that unique call, maybe hold off and don't <laughs> don't try to flush those birds with, with, or with gunshots, you know, or shoot into them because you could find yourself in a little bit of a pickle. Uh, but, but usually there's ways to work around that. And a lot of, there's a lot of people snow goose hunting now, and they've figured out a way to, you know, by and large, stay legal on doing that. You can avoid those, those non-target birds. And if people need more information, they can find a lot of details on the Game of Fish website, agfc.com. That's Is correct. That right? Yep. And you can call us up here at the, at the office. It's 223-6300. Um, and, and 501 area code, of course, and, and ask for to ask somebody about snow geese, and you'll probably end up talking to me in, in, eventually. So, yeah, we'll answer any questions we can and help people out where we can. Very good. Thank you for taking time to talk to us today, Luke, and uh, we'll hope to talk to you again in the future. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Finally, the Arkansas Department of Agriculture has hired its first feral hog eradication program coordinator to lead the destructive hog eradication effort in the state. J.P. Fairhead leaves the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission, where he has worked in a similar capacity since 2013. Ken Moore sat down with Fairhead this week to discuss his plans to take advantage of a $3.4 million USDA grant to move the eradication program forward this year. I'm speaking now with J.P. Fairhead, the Arkansas Department of Agriculture's first feral hog eradication program coordinator. You've been working for the Game and Fish Commission, I understand it, JP, but now you're working for the Department of Agriculture in kind of the similar role. So talk about this transition for you. You've been, as I understand it, working with the Game and Fish Commission since 2013 in feral hog control and eradication. And USDA, though, has dedicated some $3.4 million 
to an eradication pilot program. Explain your role in that and how this hopefully will help in the eradication effort. Okay. So thank you, Ken. Um, appreciate you having me on this morning. Um, so correct, yes. Since 2013, I was working with Arkansas Game and Fish Commission as the feral hog program coordinator. Uh, and what that entailed is is we basically, with Game and Fish, built a an, an internal program to try to control feral hogs on on uh, both public and private property uh, through what we felt like was the most efficient means, and that was uh, entire sounder trapping or, or using traps to catch an entire family unit at one time. Um, and so that, that kind of grew from 2013 all the way up until today. We, we've got about 50 traps um, statewide with the commission uh, that I previously worked for, and we removed anywhere from 500 to 6,000 hogs a year. We average about 5,000, or Game of Fish averages about removing 5,000 hogs a year uh, from both public and private land. So fast forward to my position with the Department of Agriculture. Um, I will be working with multiple state and federal partners to try to implement much of the same techniques um, that, that other state other state agencies and federal agencies use such as APHIS to uh, implement a private lands um, hog control program through that grant that you mentioned with the NRCS and, and so that's going to go out uh, they started that process last May um, the grant was awarded um, I believe in November of, of 2019 and we're still awaiting finalizing the grants from NRCS and, and, and eventually those funds will translate from NRCS, go to the Arkansas Natural Resources Commission, and then they will kind of filter down to a county level. Uh, there's 12 pilot counties in, in Arkansas, and within those 12 pilot areas, um, it, it's our intention to hire regional county-level folks in those districts, soil and water districts, to assist USDA APHIS or Wildlife Services with implementing that that trapping program on, on private property so that's um, basically how we foresee a lot of that going out now that's just one aspect of what i think i'm going to be doing and, and or what i will be doing is is coordinating a lot of the task force efforts is getting uh, 22 member organizations from state and federal partners to ngos to to kind of embracing um the same mentality of hog control let's, let's get after these things let's get them removed because they are such a nuisance and such a uh, monetary uh, inflict tremendous monetary damages to, to agricultural producers across the state damage estimates associated with the hogs are said to be more than one and a half billion dollars annually in the u.s I, i've got that from a, a release that was sent out just a few weeks ago and around $19 million here in Arkansas. Uh, but they're smart. They're very intelligent animals, and they learn how to avoid the traps, you know. Uh, you might get a sounder in one, but then the others will not return to that same spot. Uh, and talk about how they learn where their, if you will, for lack of a better term, safe havens are in different parts of the state where they can uh, reproduce, and they reproduce very, very quickly. So you, you mentioned that uh, Game and Fish took out about 6,000, and that sounds very, very impressive, but they can reproduce rapidly. So how can we overcome that? 
Well, that's that's a good question, um, and and that's the the big uh, elephant in the room, if you will. Is is we've got a it's one of the most prolific large mammals on the planet. Uh, they can they can their gestation period is three months, three weeks, and three days. Um, so it's it's very important to to take the proper steps in controlling what we feel like is, is population management. And and there's going to be a lot of discussion on, on how to go about that. But um, moving forward, um, the, the damages and, and getting a handle on that is just going to take a collective effort uh, across the board. Um, as far as intelligence, they're, they're incredibly smart. Um, we've been dealing with, with hogs in the state for for decades, you know, we've had them for a long time. We're continue. We're going to continue to have them for a long time um, in certain areas. But what's kind of disturbing is that is uh, the range expansion. Uh, t- pigs are typically slow uh, natural dispersers. They move up riparian or river corridors, um, and so trying to get a handle on range expansion is going to be one thing that, that the task force will likely have to to address and through our partnerships um, and, and really just getting everyone through through education and outreach to raise the awareness and, and try to develop some best best management practices. Um, from what we've found and some of the research suggests, um, pigs, like a lot of other wild animals, are very susceptible to disturbance. And so once they're harassed, disturbed, or, or whatever, they're going to seek areas of refuge, and and that's that's a, a difficult, you know, issue to address is being able to get effective control measures across the state. I mean, there, there's there's lots of different habitat types across the state, and and so looking at where we can be effective, and and especially in in row crop areas and pasture grounds, it, it's going to be. It's going to be a challenge, but one that I think our partners are, are well-versed in the technology, and, and there's other tools available um, through partners, and, and we can address those uh, as a task force and, and try to implement more effective control measures. Now, with this uh, grant program, you have a s- certain amount of money, and you've already talked about the different uh, regions of the state that'll be where that will be implemented this is going to be an expensive endeavor. I was visiting with and interviewed a landowner in southwest Arkansas two years ago who hired a trapper, you know, to stay up at night, monitor the uh, video cameras, monitor the traps, and when he captured a sounder, if you will, a group of pigs in the in the trap, then he'd go out and, and dispose of them. But that cost him quite a bit of money to hire that individual. And so how much money is available and how many trappers will we need to be effective? Um, another good question. Um, so the amount of money that's available is, is differs per pilot project area. There's one in the western River, River Valley, uh, Sebastian, Logan, Yale County. There's one in north central, uh, I believe it's uh, Izzard, Baxter, and Fulton County. Um, and then there's southeast Arkansas, it's, uh, Arkansas, Deshay, and Drew County. And then there's one in southwest, which is Severe, Hempstead, and Howard County. Or those are the three pilot areas. So, so this is a three-year project. Um, we hope to hire, again, 10 technicians at a county level. Uh, and there will be two in 
the Western River Valley, two in the north central area, and then three each in southeast and southwest. Those folks will work in conjunction with uh, APHIS personnel to do, okay. to do a lot of the trapping. So, so there's a there's a partner component to this grant that, that USDA APHIS Wildlife Service um, basically got some some funds, and they're bringing on additional staff as well in those areas. So, um, hopefully. In, in those areas, we'll be able to show some success. We'll get some damage reduction. We'll get some, um, you know, the biggest thing is complaint reduction. Yeah, and and right. we'll, we'll, a lot of hogs will be removed in those areas, and, and hopefully we can then translate it across the board. But for a, a pure monetary standpoint of, of, of what um, each trapper costs, I, I don't have that in front of me right now, but we can certainly get it. But, um the, the biggest thing is, is just if we can show success at, at a small pilot area, again, it's taking what we feel like works and what's effective at removing hogs and translate that across the county and, and hopefully at the end of the day get the counties involved uh, later on uh, to providing some traps. And, and the biggest thing that I learned working for Game and Fish is it's not – it's having staff and, and employees or folks designated that when they get up in the morning like you said it's their job to go catch catch and trap pigs and, and it takes a lot of time and effort but i think it's it's well worthwhile to remove that that pest and try to reduce damages well it's going to take special individual because a lot of that's done overnight you can kind of explain if you will just in in layman's terms we've seen the traps we not you know you have video surveillance if you will from your home from a distance and so uh the technology is there to do that. Yeah, so there's there's probably there's more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than one way to catch a hog. But in order to get the entire sounder, um, several years ago, a lot of a lot of agencies went to what they call entire sounder management, and and what that is is you catch you, you basically pre bait a spot. You know, you go out in your field or your pasture and you see hog damage. Um, a lot of folks would just throw up a trap or try to go shoot them or what have you, but we wouldn't know if we were dealing with one hog or 20 hogs. Uh, and so what the process would be if you see damage, um, most likely contact the, the Soil and Water Conservation District or APHIS, and we can, you know, once we get this program out, we'll, we'll push that information out to everyone. But once you see damage, um, Set up a bait site and put up a game camera to really see what you what you're dealing with, whether it's one hog or twenty, like I said. And then uh, what we really typically like to do is get those hogs conditioned, um, get them calm and comfortable. Come into a bait site for uh, each trapper's a little different, but a minimum of two to three days. Sometimes it may take a week, and then we slowly introduce a trap. And there's lots of different trap types, and it's a it's a large corral with with remote drop gates, and once we're and again we're, we're monitoring this through game cameras and some uh, it's called cellular video mm -hmm. um, yeah. works just like a, a security camera on a building, but it's it's coming to a smartphone and there's some traps where you uh, have a special app and you push a button on the screen and the and the gates of the trap drop. So we monitor this situation over the course of it could be less than 24 hours it could be two two to three weeks before all the pigs that, that we've that we know we're coming to that one site until they all enter the trap and when they do a, a button's pushed and 
they're caught and and removed as as quickly as possible. So and that's the that's the process. And then once that sounder's caught, um, typically we try to monitor that that site for another day to you know one day to seven days up to two weeks to make sure we got everything we we were out to get. And if that's the case, we'll continue to monitor for sign and damage and repeat the process over again at, a, at another location. Now, they're even destroying residential yards. You know, my goodness, how can we trap them if they're entering into the city limits, so to speak? Um, that's another good question. That's a um, special scenario. And when that instance typically occurs, we dealing with this with Game and Fish Commission and, and some of the issues we've had in the past is, is – at that point, just contact APHIS, USDA APHIS, or Game and Fish, and, and we reach out to the local authorities, and we make sure we have the proper permitting, and we get permission slip signed. And, you know, worst-case scenario, we may just have to disturb them and get them out to an area where we could trap, uh, which makes it more difficult. But um, hopefully we can arrest that range expansion before they get they get too too deep into these uh, more urban and suburban areas and residential areas, but it does happen. Well, okay then. I mean, it's uh, it's a challenge, but I'm glad you're on board. I'm, you know, I know we have a lot of agencies, as you've said, that are partnering in this effort. Uh, just one final word then, uh, JP, about uh, if landowners, property owners need to reach out to local officials. Who should they contact if they've discovered damage on their property? Sure. Um, the best place to start, I mean, obviously you can, you can call up here at Arkansas Department of Agriculture and, and ask for me, um, but, but we're probably going to push a lot of the calls to USDA APHIS Wildlife Services based out of Sherwood. Um, and, and we've worked with them over the years to try to develop a, a call tree to where they're, they're going to handle the bulk of the calls and push them out to which agency can help them the most based on their geographic location, uh, whether they're inside the pilot area or outside the pilot area. So hopefully just, just give me a call and we can direct them where they need to go. We'll look forward to following how this program is implemented this year and hopefully reporting on some encouraging results that you will get uh, as we uh, move deeper into this new year and this eradication effort. Been speaking with J.P. Fairhead, the Feral Hog Eradication Program Coordinator for the Arkansas Department of Agriculture on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. That's it for this week's Arkansas AgCast. We'll be back next week with the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture.